0: Slavery. This word reminds us of a dark chapter in our history, one that we believe we have long since overcome. But what if I told you this wasn't the case? In fact, the very devices you are currently listening or watching this on were built using slavery. Let me introduce you to cobalt, a precious mineral that has become the lifeblood of our modern world. Yet, the cost of this mineral isn't just measured in monetary terms, but in human lives. Many of the cobalt mines in the DRC are operated by small scale miners who work long hours in hazardous conditions for little to no pay. Armed groups control many of these mines, subjecting the workers to violence and exploitation, which includes forced labor and sexual abuse. The harsh reality of cobalt mining is that it is the source of human suffering and exploitation. Today, we speak with Siddharth Kara, author of Cobalt Red, who is one of the first to shed the light on this dark truth of modern day slavery. And remember, if you guys enjoy the episode, you guys could do me a huge favor and leave the podcast a five-star review, or if you're on YouTube, leave it a like. Now let's get into it. So I guess to start off at the top, for maybe somebody that doesn't have any experience with what's happening in the Congo, has been able to read Cobalt Red, whatever it might be, can you just give a quick synopsis of what is happening in the Congo?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And thank you so much for the invitation to have this conversation, um, which is so important uh, because it touches all of our lives. And I think that's one of the most um, crucial aspects of this. So, what's happening is this um, people like you, uh, me, uh, everyone listening to us right now, we can't function for 24 hours without uh, a mineral called cobalt. Uh, And that's because it's an essential component to almost every lithium-ion rechargeable battery used in the world today, every smartphone, tablet, laptop, um, and crucially, uh, almost every electric vehicle. And about three-fourths of the world's supply of cobalt is mined in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. And contrary to stories you might hear from tech and EV companies at the top of the supply chain, uh, it's mined in utterly degrading uh, appalling conditions uh, that are destructive not just to the population, to the human beings living there uh, but to the environment around them uh, and that's why um, uh, this book is so important these stories are so important because it touches our lives and I think you put your finger on an, uh, a crucial aspect to this, which is uh, to try to inhabit the shoes of the people there to to feel that sense of connection to them and their lives because we are so deeply connected to them. We can't uh, make it from one day to the next without relying on them. And yet they seem uh, so far away and disconnected from us. And that's the purpose of Cobalt Red is to bring their voices out into the world, a world that can't function without their suffering.
0: And can you maybe explain how things kind of became the way they are? I mean, it's been an evolution in a pipeline where it seems like things have just continually gotten worse whether it's the rampant corruption that's kind of stagnated deals that they've made with China there's a lot in there's a lot in play that's really kind of created the situation we see now so can you kind of say how stuff really got started and how it's came to where it is today
1: yeah well i mean how far do, does one want to go back because the thing with the congo is uh, you can you can draw a line and say okay the misery started here but then you realize no actually it goes back further it goes back further uh, and I think that's one of the great tragedies uh, of the heart of Africa, uh, of the Congo, is it's just been pillaged, ransacked, enslaved, uh, and marauded by uh, foreign powers who come uh, in search of its treasures. And this goes back centuries. Uh, but we could try sort of maybe draw a more immediate line looking at um, starting with the Belgian colonial period, um, because it's relevant to what's happening today. Um, the Belgians and in particular King Leopold got his hand on the on the on the Congo as personal property uh in the late um nineteenth century, around the same time that the internal combustion engine was invented, so the first automobile revolution. Um and they didn't work very well uh, at high speeds because they had steel clad wheels until in eighteen eighty eight this fellow Dunlop invented a rubber tire. And so the scramble was on and the Congo happened to be uh, Leopold's Congo, happened to be sitting on one of the largest rubber tree rainforests in the world. So he deployed this mercenary army that terrorized, slaughtered, uh, pillaged, uh, and killed the people there. Uh, in, a, in One of the most appalling slave uh, regimes in history it inspired Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness and uh, 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 it goes down in history as one of the uh, most um, uh, miserable examples of inhumanity. Uh, 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 and and colonial pillage in history. Now, that's the first automobile revolution. So, you know, the Belgians kept um, pillaging the Congo for resources uh, until then. The mining assets in the southeastern part of the country were discovered in the early 1900s. Mostly, it was for copper at that time. Uh, you jump ahead to independence. Um, Congolese independence in 1960, and the country's economy was almost entirely dependent on uh, mining operations in the southeastern Congo. And 11 days after independence, the Belgians just took over that part of the Congo. They just sent in an army and, and basically chopped it off from the rest of the country. And the country's prime minister, who had been democratically elected, tried to, to intervene. He tried to reunify the country, get the Belgians expelled. To make a long story short, they conspired with the U.S. and some other countries to assassinate this man. Uh, and prop up a bloody dictator in his place. And it's been one dictator after another, which gets us to the present time. Uh, So the country's been hobbled by dictators, corruption, and foreign powers interfering and pillaging the country. And now we come to this second automobile revolution, the transition from internal combustion engines to electric vehicles. And just like Leopold's, Congo had all the rubber for that first revolution Uh, The Congo today is sitting on more reserves of cobalt than the rest of the planet combined, and that cobalt is crucial to the batteries in those cars. And once again, uh, the people and resources of the Congo are being pillaged mercilessly to scramble cobalt out of the ground and send it up the chain into our gadgets and cars.
0: And for a country that's so resource rich, you would think, to give it a pop culture reference, it should be Wakanda, something that we see in Marvel movies, where it has so much money, so much wealth. You know, it's like the pillar, the city on the hill in Africa. That's what it should be. But as you've stated, starting with Leopold, it's been time and time again pillaged; these resources taken, and the return has been very minimal. Do the people on the ground understand that? Do they feel
1: absolutely? That type of- yeah, absolutely. I, and it's funny you say that because I I remember telling a colleague, one of my guides in the Congo. I mean, they, they don't get. Marvel movies and the mining provinces, but I kind of tried to describe to him Wakanda. I said, you know, the Congo is what Wakanda would be without that force shield that camouflages the whole place. Uh, Because if it hadn't been camouflaged, then you know it would have just been ransacked by pirates and pillages. Foreign powers they had to come after that vibranium, just like they're coming after the cobalt in the Congo. So this is what happens. Uh, Congo is what happens when you can't hide your treasures. From the rest of the world. And so people look around in the Congo and they see what's happening. I mean, they see their countryside being ripped apart. Millions of trees in the mining provinces have been clear cut. Their water is now contaminated. Uh, The earth is contaminated with toxic mining uh, effluence. So they see their countryside being ripped apart. They see their land being spoiled uh, and then they suffer You know, they see each other suffering, suffering injury, toxic contamination, uh, spinal spines shattered, legs amputated, all this misery uh, for this metal in the ground. And they see no benefit from it because they only get paid a dollar or two a day to scratch this stuff out of the ground in great hazard, while these uh, riches um, stack to the sky by companies at the top of the chain, it's all built on their, on their shoulders with their resources. And they see that, uh, but they're so powerless. you know. It's a poor, war-torn country uh, that just simply can't uh, fight back in any meaningful way from these powerful stakeholders outside of the Congo that descend on that place uh, and just ransack it to death.
0: At one point in the book, too, you had these conversations with these three students, which we're talking about going to graduate school in Europe and in a lot of ways, recognizing their privilege and their opportunity in a country like the Congo and the position that they were in. However, it was a really interesting conversation because you're trying to garner their perspective on all the mining that you're seeing and all the the sadness, the despair, the people being taken advantage of. And they seem to be in a really precarious position where it was almost like they couldn't speak out against it, but you could also tell that they recognized how dismal it is. So from the general perspective of people that are maybe in that quote-unquote middle class there in the Congo, is their perspective very similar? Do they understand just how bad it is? Or in a lot of ways, do they kind of shield themselves mentally or even physically from seeing just how like terrible the situation really has gotten?
1: Yeah, and, and let, let's be clear. I mean, uh, 70 plus percent of the people in the Congo live on incomes of, of less than $2.20 a day. It's mean, just grindingly poor people. Half the country lives on incomes of around a dollar a day. Um, but in in a town called Lubumbashi, which is the big town in the mining provinces, there's a university there, uh, and there's some people who go and get educated, and and some of the very small fractional one percent of people who have um, some resources may even go abroad to study. And so I met with some of those students, and I talk about those that that meeting. In cobalt red, and you know they were acutely aware not only of how fortunate they were relative to the rest of their countrymen, um, but they could see what was happening. You know, and they felt very powerless. There's so much um, uh, economic forces just controlling the way things are in the Congo. There's political corruption, uh, but they saw their environment being destroyed. I remember one of the students said that when you see what the mining companies have done to our um, rivers and forests, your heart will cry. And and this was early in my journeys there. And, and as I got deeper into the mining provinces, I, I, I understood what she meant because their entire countryside has just been destroyed. You, you can't imagine it. I mean, there are no birds in the sky. There's no flowers. There's no streams. Uh, the air is this toxic haze that burns your eyes. You can feel the grit in your throat. And it's all from this mining, these mining companies that are proclaim that they operate sustainably and the tech and EV companies say all their cobalt is mined sustainably, but then you get on the ground and none of that is true. It's, it's utter destruction because these people and their earth don't count the same as you and ours. Now you go one rung down from like some students at, at the one university that's in that part of the country. And people are very nervous to talk uh, as you point out. Because um, there's a lot at stake. There's a lot of money at stake. And the secrets are supposed to remain buried. And um, a villager seen talking to an outsider would suffer very grave consequences. Um, This truth is supposed to be buried. And and my hope is that Cobalt Red is helping to bring this truth out into the world for the first time.
0: Can you speak to how they're burying that truth as well? I know you've had run-ins, obviously, with some of the militias there. And it even goes all the way to the top, where and I hope we dive into this in a little bit, but you know some of the corruption we've even seen at the presidency level, and looking at you know which what direction they'd go, maybe China or the U.S., and we could definitely get into that. But just in general, how how is this shield being placed, whether blanket shield, whatever you want to say, over that region, and you know really why is it stopping people from being able to speak up?
1: Well, the, the, the cobalt mining provinces in the Congo, uh, which, again, is the southeastern corner of the country, um, is heavily militarized. You know, much of the Congo is just a lawless frontier, uh, roving militias. It's just there's no control by the government. There's no control by anyone. Uh, but the mining provinces, because there's so much money at stake, I mean, the, the entire country's economy um, is dependent on those mining assets. Uh, the economy, such as it is, um, so it's heavily guarded. There, there's there's mining police. There's Republican Guard. There's the army, and then even in those provinces, there's roving militias that just kind of carve out a territory and control it. All these soldiers are packing AK-47s and machetes, and their job uh, is twofold. Number one, just make sure the mines are secure and the cobalt is flowing, and number two, keep keep prying eyes out because truth of what's happening there is a horror. It's a modern day horror. Um, and that truth can't come out because it puts everything at risk. Because at the top of the chain, Apple, Tesla, Samsung, BMW, Daimler, Google, the rest of them all claim that the mining operations and the cobalt in their supply chains is all sustainably mined, that every participant in their supply chain their human rights are, are are protected and preserved and respected, and so nothing can uh, contradict that that narrative, you know. But the truth contradicts that narrative, and so the truth has to be contained, and that's why it's so heavily guarded, so hard to get into those areas, so hard to move around, and why people are so afraid to talk to outsiders because uh, once that veil of darkness is pierced and light flows through, and people can see that there's a an absolute horror taking place in the Congo in order for us to have our rechargeable lives, uh, people won't stand for it. I, I genuinely, I, you know, people by and large are, are good and won't, didn't sign up for this idea that when I plug in my smartphone, I'm plugging in the death of a Congolese child. Or when I'm buying my electric vehicle, which I think I'm making a green choice, uh, it actually comes at the cost of destroying the earth in the heart of Africa. People didn't sign up for that. Uh, But that's what the truth is. And that's why it's so heavily guarded. But now the truth is emerging and the voices of the Congolese people are being heard.
0: How deep do you think that communication pipeline goes? Do you think these Apple, Tesla, whatever company you want to name, do they know, do they communicate that it has to be kept secret? Or is that, you know, at the will of the Congolese government? You know,
1: it's like this. They all know what's happening on the ground. Um, They all know and yet they sit back and put out these statements that uh, their supply chains are clean and the mines are run on a sustainable basis, uh, but they know what's happening on the ground. And they know that these secrets, one way or another, will be protected and preserved. And whoever's job it is, whether it's the Congolese government, Chinese mining company, local army officials, you know, they know that these secrets will be protected up to a point. And I think we've reached that point now, as this truth starts to uh, to emerge. There have been journalists heading down there, NGOs trying to do work, and of course, this is the first book, Cobalt Red, uh, that's really revealing the full extent of this horror. And so now the question is, what are they going to do about it? Um, you know, they've kind of boxed themselves in the corner because, on the one hand, if they say, "Well, we didn't know," now that we know, we'll do something about it. Then the question is. How did you not know? Isn't it your job to know your supply chain? Haven't you been saying all this time that your supply chain is untainted by child labor and hazardous labor and so on? So on the one hand, you're telling me everything's all right, but you didn't know. Or they could say, well, we knew all along, but didn't address it. <laughs> you know, that's not going to work either. So they're pinned in a corner, but they have put themselves in that corner. And now the question is, Uh, which shoe is going to drop, and it's up to us to keep amplifying this message uh, and building the pressure until the people in the Congo, in Africa, and the world around them is treated with the same respect and care as our people and our world are treated here.
0: And can you dispel the myth of clean cobalt? Because that's the common claim that you get from these top companies. And obviously, there's a lot of different areas in the supply chain that makes that very untrue. But like you're saying, we have to keep them honest. So I think understanding why that claim in itself is a myth is really critical.
1: Yeah, I'll, I'll lay it out. Um, and, and so let's be clear three fourths of the world's supply of cobalt comes from the Congo. And there's absolutely no such thing as a clean supply chain of cobalt from the Congo. So there's no clean cobalt out there. Okay. Uh, and now, why do I say that? Well, first and foremost, What do we mean by clean? That it's mined in a sustainable way without environmental damage, that if a tree is chopped down, one is planted somewhere else to take its place and so on. Well, none of that is happening. Uh, The environment has been obliterated there. And I put up time-lapse photos on social media showing like 2013, 2020, and you see entire countryside destroyed, trees gone, lakes gone. Now you get on the ground and it's all this toxic contamination. So people are getting cancer thyroid disease, respiratory ailments, birth defects, a whole public health catastrophe because of all of the pollution and toxic contamination from mining companies. So right there already, there's no such thing as clean cobalt, just from the environmental standpoint and the public health standpoint. Now we layer in human rights and they'll say, well, there's no uh, cobalt mined through artisanal techniques in our supply chain and they use this term there's industrial mining which means heavy machinery and so on and then there's artisanal mining so already they're using words that misrepresent the reality this term conjures the image of people baking bread or making trinkets or whatever like quaint artisanal techniques but the, what it means is some of the poorest people in the world with their bare hands or a pickaxe or stretch a stretcher rebar Caked up to their neck in toxic filth, because cobalt is toxic, scrounging cobalt out of the ground. So they say that's not in their supply chain. And they'll all say that. So then you have to ask yourself, well, if artisanal cobalt, cobalt dug out of the ground by this population of people, is not in anybody's supply chain, where's it all going? So it's kind of just a silly proposition. Uh, But here's why we know it's going into their supply chain. Number one, they'll say there's no artisanal mining that's taking place at industrial mines. And I've been to most of the industrial mines in the Congo, not all of them, but most of them. And there are artisanal miners digging inside all of them. And what they dig out of the ground for a dollar or two a day in hazardous conditions, suffering shattered legs and pit wall collapses and toxic exposure, is all added into the industrial production, and then categorized as industrial. Um, and the industrial mines that I haven't been inside, because they're so heavily guarded, I talked to people who worked inside them and said, yeah, we dig inside there every day. We're paid the $2 for the sack. So this idea that there's no artisanal cobalt, child labor cobalt, hazardous labor cobalt in their supply chain because it's all industrial is just a myth because they're inside the industrial mine. In addition, There's hundreds of thousands of people who dig in and around the industrial mines. Uh, The cobalt deposit doesn't stop at the fence. You know, it's under the ground. The mine has a concession, which is land they're allowed to exploit. The fence doesn't mean that's where the cobalt stops. It still spreads out under the ground. So people dig all around and everything they dig, you can see it happening right in front of you. There's buyers from the mine who come out. They buy the sacks from a family including children and then cart it back into the mine. So everything that's being dug out of the ground by these hundreds of thousands of people, including tens of thousands of children, whether it's inside the industrial mine or outside goes into the industrial mine. Then it's dumped in the same batch of acids uh, because cobalt is always attached in nature to copper and nickel. There's one ore body that has all three metals, all of which are used for batteries. Uh, But the industrial company has to separate the metals because they have different royalty rates to pay to the Congolese government. So it's all dumped into the same batch of acids. And from that point forward, you can't tell what came from an excavator, what came from the hand of a child. So before it's ever left the Congo, there's no way to claim there's a clean supply chain of cobalt.
0: And can you explain, too, why the people on the ground... It's, they're basically locked out of having any opportunity to actually mine and sell the cobalt themselves or even be able to set up their own mining operations as a community?
1: Well, all the... I mean, the the people who live there have been pushed to a cliff's edge. You see, big big foreign mining companies came in and just bought up enormous, enormous tracts of, of the countryside. I mean, entire swaths of the countryside. When I say enormous, this is what I mean. The largest copper cobalt mining concession in the Congo concession is the land they can exploit. The largest copper cobalt mining concession in the Congo is about the size of London. So you have to imagine a city sized swath of earth under the control of a mining company being ripped apart, obliterated uh, uh, for mining excavation. Now there were tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of people who were living on that land before farming, farming, Catching fish and so on. And they're all kicked out. And now they can't survive. They have no place to live. There's no place to go. Now you multiply that times 10, 15, 20 concessions. Everyone's pushed to the edge. And the only way they can survive is to scramble back into the land where they used to live and try to dig out uh, that sack or two of cobalt today for the dollar or two uh, a day they'll get, which is the difference between eating or not for that day, surviving or not for that day everything else land water is all contaminated down there so there's it's almost impossible to find alternate livelihoods uh, for one village let alone for an entire countryside worth of people
0: and the corruption we've seen is rampant and like I said I spoke to it a little bit and I throughout the story it was just amazing and even you know looking at outside sources as well I mean you see everything up to the highest level with the president, even to low-level security. So can you maybe speak to that corruption a little bit and how it really does play a hand in how the situation has gotten as bad as it has?
1: Yeah, poor, poor governance is a part of the problem, no question. Uh, and corruption has dogged the Congo since independence. Uh, and this is a function of being such a poor, war-torn country. Um, you know, foreign powers can come in waving around money And by leadership, by by presidents, by by government officials, uh, to just look the other way and let them run off with the country's resources, and that's that's been uh, the plague of the Congo since independence. But we have to appreciate the broader context here. So it's not just as simple to say, "Well, their leadership is corrupt, and that's the problem." You see, colonialism. All of Africa was colonized. Colonialism. Taught people that government is a system of theft. It's not about governing. It's not about looking after people, keeping them safe, providing for the public good, or any of that. Colonialism, which was a, a form of government, taught everybody in Africa government equals theft. And so th- those lessons are being reproduced post independence. Uh, now, there's another important thing that happened as African countries gained their independence. And and it all happened very rapidly in the 60s. In 1960 alone, there were 17 countries that got independence from their colonial um, overlords. When they tried to strike out on their own, and the Congo did this with their first democratically elected president, Patrice Lumumba, who said, wait, we have these resources. They should be for the benefit of our people. Uh, Our people should be uplifted by the... By the treasures in our dirt, it shouldn't. The value shouldn't keep flowing out of the country as it has for generations under the Belgians. Um, that man was assassinated within months and replaced with a dictator who said, "Okay, I'll keep the I'll keep the treasures flowing." Uh, so post-colonial Africa and that that dynamic played itself out in several African countries. Uh, the colonial powers that said, "Okay, we're writing down on a piece of paper that you have independence." It was just paper. They had no intention of parting with the valuable resources there. Uh, And and so there was a lesson taught to African leaders just after independence that you play ball with the neocolonial powers or we'll kill you and find someone who will. And so now even if you have a leader in a place like the Congo, which had no peaceful transfer of power from independence in 1960 until the year 2019, um, now if you have a leader – and you say, why don't you stand up for your people and keep the value of your resources here? They'll say, Lumumba, that's why. They'll hack me to pieces and replace me with someone who's going to be corrupt, and And so what's the point?
0: Is there any calls, any political party forming? I, I know you highlighted that just with the most recent transition of power at the presidency, but in general, like a political Party, a political atmosphere that actually is for the people? Or are they just too scared of what you're highlighting? Is that there's just too much outside geopolitical threats that kind of cause political voices to silence?
1: You know, those those sort of geopolitical influences, the power brokers outside of the Congo wield enormous influence uh, and threat over the country. Now, that said, the current president who uh, came into power just a couple of years ago, in, well, 2020. Uh, President Shishiketi, and that was the, the first peaceful transfer of power since 1960. So generations of Congolese people didn't know what it was like to just have an election and a peaceful transfer of power. Uh, he's making efforts to clean up corruption. Uh, he's tried to bring transparency, especially to the mining sector, where there's so many shady Chinese mining deals that were signed by his predecessor, Joseph Kabila. Uh, and he is, it seems, trying to veer the country away from China. And Kabila was very much in China's pocket. Uh, veer the country away from China and towards the West, because he sees what Chinese companies, what state-run Chinese companies, are doing to his countryside and his people, and they're not sharing in the value of these resources. Uh, so he's trying to migrate the the country away from Chinese dominance. Uh, it's a tall order because they do control. Uh, almost all of the mining provinces. They locked them down under the Kabila years. Um, and so it remains to be seen whether he can be successful or in the next election, which is at the end of this year, uh, you know he'll be replaced with someone who's going to play ball and go back to, in, in the direction of China.
0: And does it worry you that the U.S. doesn't have the urgency to kind of jump on this, it seems? I mean, you know, we see China making, quote unquote, power moves all around the world, whether it's formation with bricks and switching, you know, the dollar to the on or making moves in Afghanistan, trying to find peace in Ukraine and Russia to, you know, put themselves in a position there. Does it worry that the U.S. is just kind of sitting on the sidelines, especially with an opportunity like this?
1: Well, th- this is the thing. I mean, there's not a single U.S. control mining company operating in the Congo, and there hasn't been for since 2006. I mean, imagine that the dawn of the rechargeable battery revolution uh, there was one U.S. company there, and they actually had that concession that was the size of London. They had the big one, uh, Freeport McMoran, uh, and they sold it to a Chinese company uh, in 2006 at the dawn of the rechargeable battery revolution and before you know the EV revolution. So they had been sitting on a treasure chest, and that would have given the U.S. a strong ground presence to be a counterweight. Uh, but what happened is China locked it all down. And now the U.S. and its Western allies are scrambling to figure out what to do. You know, now they're sort of 10 years too late saying, wait a minute, China controls this vital renewable energy supply chain from the dirt all the way to the battery. They've locked it down and vertically integrated it. Uh, We need to play catch up. And it's a challenge now. And there's a scramble to, uh, you know, to figure out, how do you create alternate supply chains uh, if you don't have any ground presence? Uh, And sadly, uh, it's going to be a real challenge uh, unless there's magically some enormous new deposit of cobalt found somewhere um, that U.S. can get get on the ground uh, and and at least create some kind of counterweight or counterbalance. Uh, But that's very unlikely. Reality is, uh, the U.S. and its Western allies were caught flat-footed on this battery revolution. Um, China saw the future, uh, for better or worse. They figured it out before anyone else did, and they've locked it down. And now the rest of the world is very beholden to to their control of these supply chains.
0: And so what's, what are some of the steps that the U.S. can take here too? Because you highlight this well in the book, and I've heard you on other podcasts and other shows and you know, I tend to agree where I think if we went in and, you know, created communities there and paid fair wages and provide the technologies necessary to, to, you know, create clean mining operations, it would be great for the Congo, for the people there, for the communities in general. But again, like we have to overcome that challenge with China and their control over the region. So what are some steps that U.S. can take right now, whether that's being hardline on China or direct relations with the Congo?
1: Well, US-based companies are among the biggest buyers of Congolese cobalt via China, right? I mean, Apple, Microsoft, Google, Tesla, to name four, among the biggest buyers of cobalt coming out of the ground from the Congo. Um, So they are responsible for a large... Amount of demand for this metal. Now we may not have a mining company on the ground, but those companies—the four I mentioned and others—could very easily put teams on the ground and do this kind of work we're discussing now. This community strengthening, ensuring adherence to human rights norms, ensuring sustainable mining practices. They're the buyer. You know, if they say this is the these are the conditions under which we want this this cobalt extracted. Uh, uh, you know, and they have so much buying power that would have some impact. But the thing is, none of them are down there; they're not on the ground saying, "Wait a minute, we're out here telling the world in our SEC filings that there's no child labor in our supply chains, and we're out here telling the world in our marketing uh, uh, press releases that our cobalt supply chains, the mining is done sustainably." Uh, we'll get on the ground and actually make sure that's happening, as you say it is, because. It's not good enough to just say it. You have to get on the ground and then maintain it, ensure it. And that's the missing piece is the companies are just sitting back and not taking responsibility for their own supply chains, um, not taking responsibility for the people of the Congo digging out their cobalt. And if those companies, just the four big ones, got on the ground and said, OK, starting today, these are the standards that have to be maintained. Um, things would start to change. Wouldn't solve all the problems overnight, but they things would start to change and they have enough resources to say, hold on, cobalt's toxic to touch and breathe. And I see all these people touching it and breathing it all day. Let's give them some PPE. We'll do it ourselves. I mean, it, it, it's a de minimis expense relative to their balance sheets. Masks, hat, gloves, hard hat for everybody. So at least we know, People aren't going to have toxic exposure every day, get cancer, and then birth defects. You know, that one public health catastrophe we can address like that. So the Chinese buyer is only paying a dollar or two a sack of cobalt to this family here. And as a result, mom and dad can't keep their child in school. They need to bring the child into the pit to help them dig, to earn an extra dollar so they can eat that day. That's not acceptable. Let's just pay everyone a fixed wage of $10 a day. Okay, mom and dad get $10 a day. And the child can stay in school. They have enough money for clothes, for food, for medicine, when someone gets a cough or cold, whatever. And we reduce child labor levels as a result. And people have a dignified, decent living wage instead of this pathetic subhuman wage that they can't even survive on. Little things like that that don't cost much money and that aren't complicated could be done very quickly if they would decide to get boots on the ground themselves.
0: And so companies try to make the argument against that, saying that, for one, the wages don't necessarily fall on them as the money is going to these Chinese firms, that they should be paying the wages or that the government should be stepping in and making these expectations. So can you showcase why, for one, that's irresponsible, as you were highlighting, but two, that when these wages are going to be provided by these companies, there'll actually be a net benefit instead of, you know, allowing these other actors to be able to be involved in kind of creating the situation we're seeing now.
1: Yeah, the, the problem is everybody is expecting everybody else to be responsible for the people digging the cobalt out of the ground. They're all benefiting from that cobalt. They're all making a lot of money from that cobalt. But they're all pointing the finger at each other and saying, no, you should you should be responsible for their wages and their PPE and their health care and their schools and so on. And when everyone's pointing the finger at everybody and no one's accepting responsibility, what's the what's the what's the outcome of that is people suffering at the bottom. And when demand, it, it's as simple as this. Demand starts at the top. That's where the solutions need to start, too. Uh, Everything happening downstream is only a consequence of the demand created at the top. So it's, it shouldn't be that complicated. Figuring out how to make a smartphone or an EV is complicated. Figuring out how to put a team of 15 people on the ground in the Congo, ensuring wages are paid, human rights standards are being maintained, and people have some gloves and, and, and boots, that's easy. Uh, and it's as simple as a company saying, All right. At the end of the day, this cobalt may wind its way around the planet through China and here and there and everywhere and end up in my smartphone and car. But that's where it ends up. The journey stops there. Uh, And so we're responsible for what's happening at the start of the journey. And it's not acceptable to keep pointing the finger at everybody else because then no one's accepting responsibility and only the poor people are suffering.
0: Do you think these companies are worried that if they were to be hardline in these situations and really put these, you know, stingy expectations on these Chinese mining companies that they could be cut off from cobalt supply?
1: No, because China wouldn't cut off its nose to spite its face. I mean, they're they're only making money by selling cobalt to these companies. I mean, they don't want warehouses full of cobalt that they don't know what to do with. Right. I mean, it is a codependent relationship. Um, uh, the Chinese mining companies and refining companies and battery manufacturers all make their money, uh, as cobalt makes its way up the chain and ultimately to smartphones and cars. So they're not going to say to a company that's buying as much of this stuff as an Apple or a Tesla, you're cut off. They're hurting themselves more than anyone. Uh, I mean, if it was some small little niche company that sold 10 smartphones a year, they'd cut them off. But I mean, their own citizens are buying these things left, right and center. So uh, I don't think that's, it's this, there's a codependency, there's a deep dependency in the supply chain. You know, they all require each other and no one can hurt the other. And that's why they kind of all sit back twiddling their thumbs, hoping no one's paying attention to the slaughter of the Congolese people, uh, because then they have to reconcile their false marketing statements with the truth, and then do something about it. But look, at the end of the day, all of this is just is so simple. It would not even be that expensive. These companies wouldn't even notice the expense. I mean, I'm sure I haven't done the math recently, but probably one-tenth of the annual bonus of the CEO would fund several years of ten dollar a day income for the few hundred thousand people in the Congo digging cobalt out of the ground, as well as the one-time cost of their PPE with enough money left over to maybe build a few schools and a few public health clinics and clean up some of the water that's been polluted along the way and go plant some trees for the millions that were chopped down. It it wouldn't be that expensive. Uh, It's the only reason you can come, the only conclusion you can come to as to why this, this simple set of steps hasn't been undertaken, it's because Nobody up the chain thinks the Congolese people are worth it. They're worth less than us and their environment is worth worth less than ours. And that's why it's okay to pillage them and destroy their environment because they're worth less. And that's the colonial mindset persisting into the modern era.
0: And do you think they've taken advantage of the political situation that we've been having with, you know, the, there's a dynamic happening, uh, for you know decades now but recently in the past few years especially between China and the US and this idea of being you know the top notch competitors and people want to say you know there there's calls people think we're inching towards war Wh- whatever perspective you might want to take on it is that anytime China's involved in a situation there's always calls in the US for almost aggressive counterplay to that so do you think companies are also taking advantage of this situation where since China is the main player there currently they're able to kind of bounce off expectations that would be held on them because the US isn't there that they don't want to be associated with the situation where China's kind of the overwhelming force?
1: I think uh, you know I think what's unacceptable in all this is when when these companies at the top of the chain rely on the downstream assurances of state-run Chinese mining companies that human rights standards are being maintained and mining is being done sustainably. I for them to sit back and just accept those statements at face value when we know, the world knows, China puts very little premium on human rights of their own people, let alone people in Africa, uh, and very little premium on environmental sustainability, particularly in a continent. 5,000 miles away to sit back and just accept their statement that everything's okay. Look the other way. Uh, it is just a height of nonsense and whether it's fear or, uh, uh, being, uh, taking advantage of the impasses and these proxy wars and the tensions between the two powers and just operating in these gaps and chasms, uh, 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 who's to say? I don't know. But what I do know is uh, sitting back and doing nothing while China runs amok in Africa uh, and just buying up the batteries and and cobalt anyway uh, is an unacceptable uh, way of doing business. It's an unacceptable way of constructing a global economic order. Uh, You know, in essence, we're saying, well, people are being shot, but we're not pulling the trigger. We're just doing business with the person pulling the trigger. I mean, that's, that's, uh, that's farcical reasoning, uh, and it should be unacceptable to everybody. Uh, you should actually say, wait a minute. How can you be doing business with companies that behave in this way? You know they're behaving badly. The truth is coming out. Uh, you can't sit back and do nothing about it. Whether there is intergovernmental tension or not, at the end of the day, you're a private company. I mean, you're a non-governmental uh, agency or a, a corporation, uh, which has not just a obligation to your consumers and shareholders, but also an obligation to maintain certain shared principles and standards of how we do business. And it's important that U.S.-based companies spearhead a different Model for how the global economy should be functioning. It should not be corruption and bribery for resources and human rights tossed into the trash bin. It should be, yeah, we're going to make money and do well, but we're also going to make sure ourselves, not accept someone else's word for it. We're going to make sure ourselves, with boots on the ground, that our principles of as a country, our shared values. For the importance of human rights and environmental sustainability are maintained all the way down our supply chains.
0: Speaking of proxy wars, you mentioned that really quick in, in the spiel there. And it's we see with Ukraine, billions of dollars was quickly sent to the conflict happening there. And if you go on Twitter, if you go on any social media site, a lot of the American people's support for Ukraine is, is pretty prevalent in a lot of ways, the consumer holds the power in these situations. Do you think there's a level of willful, willful ignorance about the situation? Because like you said, someone right now is listening to this on a phone or watching on a computer. You know, They might be getting in their Tesla right after and listening in there. These cobalt's everywhere. So do you think there's a willful ignorance where they don't want to know where these devices they use every day is actually coming from?
1: Well, I think, I think this uh, this horror was hidden from the world um, for the last 15 years. I mean, you know, Ukraine exploded on the world stage and was rightfully covered in the media. And everyone uh, knew about it immediately. And it was important to draw a line in the sand and say, you know, we have to stand up for our principles. You can't just go invading people. You can't just topple democratically elected governments. And that, too, on the doorstep of, of Europe. Uh And now one can quibble about how far do you push back? Where should the line in the sand be? What kind of resources and weaponry should and shouldn't be sent, or whatever? But the right thing to do was once this horror fell on the world, and everyone knew about it, um, the Western world said, "This is not how. uh, This is not the economic. This is not the global order we're going to tolerate, and we're going to push back as far as we can." Uh, And I think even China was probably, and certainly Russia was, surprised at the. Uh, uniform nature of the response. Now, the thing about Congo and cobalt is this has been going on for probably 15 years, uh, but people didn't know. Uh, It was so hidden, you know, hidden in the heart of darkness. And one of the, I mean, I've received thousands of emails and messages from people, and the first sentence is almost always, I had no idea. I'm so shocked this is happening. I could, I can't believe this is happening in the year 2023. So now the world is learning. And so the question you pose is, as the world finds out, as consumers find out, as people find out, what are they going to do? Are they going to look the other way and just keep plugging in and checking social media and living their life? Uh, or are they going to draw some line in the sand? and say, this is not tolerable. This is not the kind of world order we need to uh, 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 tolerate. And what can consumers do? That's, that's an important question. Uh, the answer is not nothing. They certainly can't solve the problem, but it's also not to do nothing. And I think the role people can play is to spread awareness. As this truth comes out, and as 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 the voices of the Congolese people spread around the world, and people learn about it, um, our responsibility collectively is to continue amplifying their voices. Like the conversation you and I are having now, you reached out to me, you saw an interview I did, you said this is an important conversation. Something's happening that I can't tolerate, and I want I want to tell people about it. And so now you and I are talking, and someone's going to hear this conversation, right? And it's just going to continue growing as this truth washes over the world, floods over the world. And then, as always happens through history, when a horror is revealed to the world, there is some community of conscience that forms. Okay, And they say, this is not tolerable. We cannot let this injustice stand. And with their force of will, they will drag the rest of humanity along with them to set something right. You know, every human being listening to this isn't in a position to solve this problem, but we can spread awareness and then ultimately be agents of support for those who do come forward to lead a new movement. And it happened with the first Congo horror that we talked about, you know, 40 minutes ago uh, with Leopold. When that horror was revealed, there was a community that formed, a community of conscience that said, this is not tolerable. And it was a handful, just a handful of people. And they dragged the rest of humanity forward until they brought that regime down in the Congo. And something will happen like that today. Uh, There will be a group of people who will find out what levers to pull and what buttons to push to advance our collective morality until this injustice is set right.
0: And let's bring it back to the Congo. You highlighted this where, you know, cobalt, the need for cobalt is just going to continue to expand. You know, there's estimates where it looks to double or triple within the next decade. You know, the the rapid increase it's on is, is unbelievable. And they've made many economic deals, which essentially is draining the com- country of the cobalt without getting a fair return, while also having a population increase that's expected to double by, you know. Twenty forty to twenty fifty. Does it worry you that the country, with those expectations in itself, is set on the path of what could be seen as almost an economic collapse because of this? And is it almost too late to be able to react and pull them from, you know, that dark path they're set?
1: It's not too late. I mean, the Congo is heading from uh, a catastrophe into an apocalypse uh, because the population is growing, it, it, an enormous and and grindingly poor population is growing um and their resources that the value that they have in that country is all being siphoned out and that uh, economic benefits of it are enjoyed by everyone else outside of outside of the country uh, up the chain so you know with status quo if nothing changes you could have one generation from now 20 30 years from now uh uh, one of the largest populations in Africa, uh, sitting on valueless dirt, you know, with nothing to show for it, other than uh, poverty, disease, war, civil strife, and so on, and and that's in no one's interest, okay? Because when there is a such a huge country in the middle of the African continent, left poor, defenseless uh and in a power vacuum and a security vacuum and it's just rife for conflict and corruption um i mean we see in other parts of the world where there were security vacuums and overwhelming poverty that's where terrorism emerged that's where it found a root that's where it was able to flourish and find a way to strike us and you can't just let the congo become a place like that i mean it's already overrun by militias and corruption uh, and poverty But if you just let it stay on that track, you know you're looking at the entire interior of Africa becoming another hotbed of conflict that could, uh, will ultimately come back to bite us. Because what happens is that's where anger swells. You know, people look out and they see, okay, you all enjoyed your lives thanks to us. Some of you got enormously wealthy thanks to us, and you've left us with nothing. You. Deemed us worth nothing, and that's how anger and resentment builds. And that's how people, you know, people, the bad actors of the world, go in and they tap into that, and they foment it, and then and, and, and wield it with ill intention. Uh, and and that's, that's that's not a Congo we want. Um, that's not an Africa we want. It's not in anyone's interest. So right here, right now, it's not too late to get on the ground and start redirecting things, um, returning back an equitable share of this value chain to the people of the Congo. Helping improve the security situation, expanding public health, sanitation, electrification, all these things that help uplift and strengthen communities. It's, It's not hard, complicated work. It's just people have to want to do it. And it starts by saying, okay, more of the riches being generated off your backs needs to be returned to you in some way, some form, so that you're able to survive and the next generation after you is not left in an apocalypse. That that work has to start now.
0: So, Darth Gara, thank you for coming on today and thank you. For everything you're doing with this situation, like I said, for me, it's astounding how little coverage it's really getting. But I think you put it in such a, a good way during this session where we have an opportunity now to really make a grand change, not just for Congo, but for Africa and the world. And there's so much opportunity there. And, you know, we as a consumer in a lot of ways hold the power. So I really hope this pushes people to really step forward to make that change. Like you said, a few voices can really change the path that we're currently seeing. And with that, thank you for everything that you're doing with this. And I hope you continue to you know, spread this message and help people really see what's going on.
1: I will. I thank you. You've helped amplify the message with our conversation today. So I'm very grateful for that. And I know everyone I ever met in the Congo is grateful for it too.
0: If you want to let people know where to find Cobalt Red and any other social media sites where they can kind of stay updated on the situation.
1: Yeah. I mean, Cobalt Red, you can buy anywhere bookstores, online, of course. And I'm on Twitter at Siddharth Kara, uh, also on Instagram, I think, siddharth.kara. And I tend to post updates, uh, uh, meaningful news, and uh, and even the odd picture from the field on, uh, on social media as well.
0: Awesome, my man. Well, thank you again for coming thank you. on.